When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jingyi Lee from the University of Arizona. Today we have four guests with us to talk about their new edited volume, Revisiting Japan's Restoration, New Approaches to the Study of the Meiji Transformation. It was published by Rutledge this year, edited by Drs. Timothy Amos and Akiko Ishii. We also have with us Dr. Donna Brunero and Dr. Scott Hislope. There are many other contributors to this volume, but our four guests today are all faculty members at the National University of Singapore. So welcome, professors. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Books in Japanese Studies. Thank you. Thanks, Jean. So before we dive into the book, could you tell us what your main research focus is? Sure. Well, maybe I can start off. Um, so my primary research area is on early modern and modern Japanese history. I'm particularly interested in uh, problems of social stratification and marginalization in Japanese history. So in the early modern period, I focus on the study of quote-unquote outcast communities in Japan, groups that usually go under the labels of kawata or eta or hinin. Um, and in the modern period, uh, I usually focus on aspects of the history of Barakumin in Japan. I have diverse interests. Uh, I've written on treaty ports, uh, animal history, urban history, um, and uh, most recently, I've started working on the problem of historical development with uh, uh, Akiko. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. How about you, Akiko? Hi. Um, I'm an intellectual historian of uh, modern Japan. And uh, I've been looking into the, the evolution of statistics right before the major restoration and how statistics changed the way of uh, talking about governance in the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, specifically focuses, focusing on how they constructed the idea of population during this period. But the experience of editing this volume really um, encouraged me or even sort of forced me to think more seriously about the continuity between the early modern in the modern period. Now, I think I'm ready to expand my scope and look at much earlier discourse of population and the politics of counting a uh, human body. Exciting. And what about you, Donna? Oh, hi. Hi, Jingyi. Oh, yeah, my work uh, is maritime history. And so I work on maritime history, but also the British Empire in Asia. And I explore the intersections between the two. So, for instance, I'm, I'm exploring shipping, um, colonial port cities, traders that move between different ports. 
Um, one of my interests, um, additional interest, is Britons in the Chinese Maritime Customs Service. So this is something I've worked on quite extensively, and treaty ports, particularly the treaty ports of China. And I've tended to uh, explore uh, everyday life for foreigners, what it was like living within the treaty ports, and this has sort of led me to also think about material culture aspects. Fascinating. We have three historians, and last but not least, we have a literature person as well. So, Scott, what's your research focus? Hi, thanks for having us here today. Um, I study haikai poetry and uh, prose poetics of the haikai poets of the 18th and 19th centuries in Japan. Uh, I'm particularly interested in a comparison awesome. framework. Um, um, and. Yeah. So I guess, Tim, since you are the chief editor of this volume, could you briefly tell us um, what this uh, book, how, how it started and how long did you have to work on it? Because this book, I mean, even though we understand it's an edited volume, it has 13 parts and each has two to three chapters. It's quite a huge project. So how did it come to be? Okay, um, well, let me just say a few words and then I'll hand it on to my co-editor, co Akiko, um, who's done very much an equal part, the heavy lifting uh, for the volume. Um, yeah, the idea for the conference came about in 2017, um, so August, I think, 2017. Uh, I was having a number of my students, uh, both at the undergraduate and graduate levels, taking an interest in the late Tokugawa, early Meiji period. And it just struck me that the kinds of uh, work uh, that they required in order to do uh, excellent studies on their chosen topics just uh, wasn't recent enough. Um, I, I really felt that there was a lack of kind of recent publishing on the Meiji Restoration. And I heard around the place, uh, um, scholars putting together conferences uh, for the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration, which fell in uh, 2018. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of bring scholars together uh, from all over the place uh, to discuss the Meiji Restoration. Uh, and so uh, we went and got money um, not the easiest thing to do, uh, but we got money to, to do the conference. And and I'll hand it over now to, to Akiko to explain a bit more about the conference. So, yeah, as uh, as Tim explained, this project began as a, as a three-day conference. It's a big conference in Singapore in 2018. And uh, including discussions, uh, we invited more than 40 scholars from uh, different countries like Japan, Vietnam, Indonesia, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, and the US, UK, and of course Singapore. So, and then not only historians of uh, Japan, but historians of Southeast Asia, South Asia were also there. And the majority of speakers were historians, like, like today, but a few scholars of literary studies, like Scott, who is with us today, and then cultural studies, and also um, anthropologists uh, joined us. So from young scholars to, to renowned historians gathered together and talked about the major restoration. 
And one of the amazing things happened was uh, when we announced the plan to publish this volume, almost all speakers um, agreed to contribute their papers. So I think we were very, very fortunate. So we, we changed the organization a little bit uh, when we turned this into an edited volume, but we could basically save almost the entire conference and share it with the leader of, of this volume. Yes, that's truly amazing. I remember uh, when I first read the table of content and the list of contributors, I was very excited because um, it has some of my favorite scholars from around the world. So it's truly a very, uh, it's a great project. Um, so the Meiji Restoration, for a very long time, it has been seen as the dividing point for Japan's early modernity and modernity. What are some of the problems in the way that the restoration has been viewed? And how does this book respond to these understandings? So the Meiji Restoration is yeah, I, uh, probably one of the most studied uh, historical events in, in modern Japanese history. And even within a volume, you can find different ways to be engaged in uh, existing scholarship. So let me just highlight a couple of issues here. And I think many authors in our volume tackle the centrality of samurai in the narrative of the Meiji Restoration. And the study of the Meiji Restoration at, at, the, at the most basic level has been the study of um, great men or men of action, such as Sakamoto Ryoma or Saigo Takamori, like heroic individuals who who tried to save the Japanese nation and then uh, and the people um, people who suggested and carried out ambitious policies to set the nation on the course of uh, modernization. So uh, as Yokoyama Yuriko's chapter uh, briefly mentions, the image this 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 particular image is still, um, persistent in popular depiction of the major restoration, but, um, but as, as Tim briefly mentioned, this 150th uh, anniversary, sorry, 150-year anniversary of major restoration in 2018 brought about uh, various conferences and the publications with new approaches and the frameworks, and then those attempts often departed from such a narrative. And I think ours is, is one of such attempts. And uh, let me, let me uh, talk about one more point. And particularly because of uh, such uh, limited focus, the major restoration has been depicted as a moment that marks the beginning of modern Japan or major starting point of Japan's modernization process. And as you, as you said, uh, this has created a strong sense of divide between early modern and modern Japan. I think we don't completely deny such a way of looking at the major restoration, but each chapter in this volume uh, deals with this in a uniquely nuanced way. 
and then skillfully and sometimes playfully challenges it or um, goes beyond it. And more specifically, many authors in our volume look at the major restoration as a long-term uh, process rather than a short-term event that happened in or around 1868. And so they dive into uh, its complex prehistories or question the assumption and the reason why we have privileged um, 1868 so much. Since you mentioned, um, I thought maybe we could talk about this a bit more. Um, This long 19th century is one of the themes that kind of connects the entire book. So from what aspects does your volume address this theme of the law 19th century? And what, I guess we should uh, clarify, what does the law 19th century mean? Sure. Uh, let me um, take that question um, if I can. So, yeah, I think one of the things um, we have to be careful about here is um, the book contains uh, a wide variety of writings by a vast group of scholars. And one of the challenges as editors to the volume is to try to understand um, where we are, if you like, in this current moment in our understanding of the Meiji Restoration, what kinds of things authors seem to share in common uh, and what kinds of things, um, so where their understandings of the Meiji Restoration are deviating. So how to kind of categorise or classify uh, the the contributions to the book has been one of the biggest challenges for us. Um, One of the things that we uh, noticed as we were sort of reading the chapters and one of the the benefits or privileges of being an editor is that you get to read individual contributions multiple times uh, and you get to really know a lot about where the authors are coming from and and what their pet peeves are or what they really think is important. Um, And I'm hoping actually that a lot of what we've read can kind of seep deep into my body so that when I'm teaching, I can can kind of use it as a a resource. But to get back to the point, one of the the things we've noticed um, in the contributions is that scholars tended to do uh, interesting things in, I think, three ways, or at least that's how we understood it. First, um, we we had a bunch of uh, scholars who attended the conference and then contributed to the volume that were really interesting in terms of topic choice. Um, they always surprised us with the ingenuity of the kinds of topics uh, that they were choosing. So whether it was questions about... Um, what does the Meiji Restoration look like from a battlefield from the perspective of uh, medical history? Uh, What does it mean um, to think about a history of taste, for instance, uh, in Japan, so from that kind of cultural perspective, and to think about the prehistories of modern understandings of taste in Japan? Uh, What does it mean for later scholars or revolutionaries or radical uh, historians and intellectuals uh, when they try to invoke the Meiji Restoration uh, in later historical periods for their own political purposes? 
Um, so we really did have a very interesting uh, group of scholars. And, you know, I've just given you a few sort of tasters of, of what's in the volume. Other scholars uh, we noticed uh, were very interested in playing with spatial dimensions. So in other words, we had scholars who are much more committed to, for instance, micro history or regional history, and they wanted to understand the specific impact of the major restoration on localities. But then not just that, also sort of read it inside out to understand how localities continued sometimes to do things almost as if the, the Meiji Restoration didn't have uh, the kind of meaning that we would expect it to have in those localities. But to kind of witness the Meiji Restoration from a, from a brothel, from a courtroom, from a, um, a, periphery, a peripheral uh, part of the Japanese archipelago. So um, playing with spatial dimensions, right, right from locality all the way through to regional histories, to transnational histories, to global histories, to comparative histories. So by experimenting with space, we've found that our authors have been able to really contribute uh, a lot to our understanding. Uh, and I'm, I would like to ask Donna in a few moments to kind of speak about that a little bit in relation to her chapter. But then the last point, I'm sorry, it's taking a while to get to the answer to your question, but the last point uh, is about um, time, the temporal dimension that we've noticed in the volume. Now, some scholars, like the very first chapter uh, by our very esteemed contributor, uh, Mark Ravina, explicitly puts the idea of the long 19th century uh, in the title to his chapter. Um, and I think uh, the long 19th century is there um, uh, in order to, uh, to help us see how if we widen our lens and we kind of think about national history, say from, I think primarily in his case, from the late 18th century, say from the time of the French Revolution, right through to the early 20th century and what's going on in Hungary. So this kind of long 19th century, i.e. meaning the spanning from the late uh, uh, 18th through to the, the early 20th century, if we kind of broaden our lens and we think about national history and we think about the ways in which uh, nation state formation is not just something that should be understood in a singular sense, but rather as something that provides a template for many uh, places around the world to rethink what it, uh, the ways in which their countries, their societies should be transformed. Um, then it gives us a, a far better understanding of the Meiji Restoration, the singularity of the event, the focus on just a singular mono kind of national uh, framework, uh, really the relevance of that gets pushed into the background. But we've got other contributors who don't really follow a long 19th century framework. We've got uh, um, scholars who I think it's fairer to call it lingerie. Um, so really thinking about the major restoration beginning in the period of warring states right through to the 1960s. Um, we've got scholars uh, uh, like uh, we've got a chapter that looks at um, sugar and tea and labor uh, and um, and the kind of time frame that that chapter uh, gives us is also closer to a lingerie framework, I think. Um, so 
scholars are playing with time. Long 19th century is definitely one of those features, um, but I think more broadly, lingerie. But then we've also got um, scholars who, who who's whose writing very much sticks within the 19th century, but also their periodization practices are very unique. Um, we've got scholars who question whether 1868 is really the point that we should be thinking about as the revolutionary point. Um, and so, um, and I think one of the interesting things here, uh, and I'd like to kind of ask Scott after Donna uh, answers in terms of space is I think Scott's, chapter really does uh, help us to to understand uh, how time can creatively be employed and studied and understood uh, and really teaches something valuable about uh, Japan's quote-unquote modern turn. So... Okay, so maybe, maybe I should jump in here with some reflections on my chapter and just thinking about the way that I approached um, my contribution to this volume. Um, I, I guess it really does speak to the idea of, of space because I've, I've, my whole chapter is really from the China coast looking to Japan. And I think this is something that, for me, I found very interesting that, that scholars, if you examine the treaty ports, quite often you focus on just the Japanese treaty ports or just the China treaty ports. Uh, but there's not always a great connection between the two. And this is something where I found that actually there was a lot of movement between the two, whether it is traders, um, whether it is uh, different communities moving back and forth. And so this is for me a chance to sort of try to bridge that that gap between two different uh, treaty ports or treaty port communities and, and to really cast um, the Meiji Restoration into perhaps what, what is uh, quite often viewed as this part of a, well, it's transformative, but it's about treaty ports. And, and this is of uh, the treaty port era is always seen as one which is um, quite um, pivotal in providing uh, sites of change, sites of transformation is sometimes over-romanticized. Of course, there's a lot of fascination with treaty ports. But what happens when you think about that sort of broader um, east-west connections that seem to be taking place within treaty port worlds. And that was what I was trying to get at with my own work where I'm looking at the China coast and why the China coast of foreigners and foreign press is so fascinated with what they see unfolding in Japan. Fascinating. And Scott, from your perspective of literary studies, how do you view the long 19th century? Okay, that's a really great question, Jingyi. Thank you. Um, from the standpoint of literary studies, I've always felt a little bit of trepidation thinking about applying European concepts to East Asia. And the long 19th century is very much a, you know, I, I if I'm not incorrect, it was developed by Europeans to describe European uh, experiences. Uh from a small perspective of my article in this book, really nothing changes with 1868. There are always in Japan's 19th century, uh, from the beginning to the end of the 19th century, there's a kind of uh, series of changes that takes place in haikai poetry. Uh, and we can see some of those changes in the Bakumats period, in the last years of the Tokugawa shogunate. People are starting to use 
uh, wooden movable type to print haikai collections, for instance. And this creates a very different uh, material effect in the text than uh, the older woodblock prints. I think probably the biggest change that happens is 1873, the switch to the solar calendar. It's not the Gregorian calendar. That comes in the late uh, 19th century. Japan switches to a pure solar calendar uh, in 1873. And this forces rapid change in haikai poetry. Um, I suppose that we could set up a, a kind of long 19th century for Japanese literature if we were forced to do so. There's a movement of the sort of center of gravity of literary writing from Kansai to Kanto uh, in the 1750s or 1760s. And that that's a big change. And you start to see, I think, more colloquial language in the texts themselves. Uh, and I think this change culminates probably in the 1890s uh, with the uh, switch to uh, a vernacular language in prose writing uh, and the work of Masaoka Shiki himself as well in terms of poetry, uh, if we want to take two representatives. So I think that the, there's a possibility of that concept, but I feel a lot of trepidation about it. I guess we could dive into um, talking about your individual chapters now. So I guess we can start with Tim. Um, Your chapter looks into legal documents in Osaka and discusses how local governments responded to the changes brought by the restoration. What did you find in these documents and what do they tell us about local government practices around this time? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I have spent a lot of time looking at Edo. So for me, Osaka was a kind of a new development in my research. Uh, I was very interested to write something on Osaka. It's a city that I have grown really fond of uh, over the the last decade or more. And um, I spent a lot of time looking around for materials that could help me understand um, punishment uh, and criminality. Um, which is a, a kind of a core focus of my work, when, particularly when I'm focusing on uh, quote-unquote outcast groups. Um, so I was thankful that I encountered uh, a bunch of documents in uh, that had been transcribed, which is always a bonus, um, that dealt with um, transformations, that that helped me to understand transformations in the legal system in Osaka in the first uh, four years of the Meiji period. Um, The documents were a real treasure trove. They were basically documents that were housed in uh, the Osaka court, uh, which was formerly the Osaka city magistrate uh, during the Edo period. Uh, And these documents were were basically documents that recorded um, uh, uh, interrogations with people charged with particular crimes. Uh, they included deliberations uh, about uh, from, by the authorities about how to punish uh, in particular cases. Some in some cases they basically uh, it was straightforward, but in some cases, <clears throat> excuse me, they actually deliberated about it. Um, and we have confessions and all different kinds of things in these documents. And they go into great detail about who met who and who did what and who was related to who. And, um, and, and so 
there's a couple of things that you can learn uh, from the documents I was using. One is, I think, what life was like on the ground uh, for people uh, during the first few years of the Meiji period in the city of Osaka. Um, so we know that the city of Osaka was a former uh Tokugawa shogunate uh, territory uh, was under the jurisdiction of the Tokugawa shogunate. Uh, and so in the first few years of Meiji, it was a place uh, where they had uh, military personnel stationed uh, from some of the major domains in order to keep law and order, sort of prevent chaos from ensuing. But the documents themselves indicate a high level of chaos in the city. Um, it seemed like there was a lot of lawlessness in the city uh, and people were lawless in really interesting ways uh, from my perspective. So I wanted to understand that kind of social historical dimension of how um, chain, early sort of changes in after the Meiji Restoration impacted life on the ground for people living in Osaka. Uh, another dimension, of course, is um, these were legal documents. So I was very interested to understand how the question of legal reform or the way it's usually framed, I guess, is the modernization of law and legal practice was taking place in the city uh, of Osaka. So um, I went into the the project with a couple of questions in mind. Um, I was interested in um, primarily, I guess, um, in the early modern period, we know that there was a lot of legal autonomy uh, within um, status groups, uh, uh, within particular institutions. Um, so basically certain status groups or certain institutions were permitted to, to try and punish um, people that belonged to those status groups or those institutions. So I, I went into reading the documents with an eye to trying to discover to what extent those early modern practices were preserved uh, and to what extent they were eliminated in these first few um, uh, years of the Meiji period. Um, and what I discovered, I think, is uh, uh, particularly in the second year of Meiji where most of my documents focused on, um, I discovered to a large extent, uh, early modern practices were being preserved in the ruling uh, decisions or the court decisions that I was reading in relation to different status groups. Um, so I found that to be really interesting. So there wasn't any, at least in the second year of Meiji, any initial move to, to try to uh, move to a different kind of system where society was considered to be flatter uh, people were considered to be more equal. So it was kind of preserving older practices. But having said that, you can also see intimations uh, where, um, where people in Osaka are very concerned about what's going on in Edo, uh, what kinds of decisions are being made. There's a clear awareness amongst people in Osaka that things are going to change, uh, that they need to kind of be locked in step with what's going on in Edo, which was the place, of course, of the central government. Um, and so uh, looking to Edo for directives is also something that we find. But at the same time, people are making decisions based on their own personal ethics. They're also looking at the Ming legal codes uh, to kind of give them advice. And so it's messy. 
And the argument I put forward in the end is that essentially um, the, the nationalization of law is not sort of linear. It's not simplistic. Um, there is a way even that we can read the, the early sort of legal reforms in Osaka as being things themselves that contributed to the nationalization process. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically what I did in my chapter. Fascinating. And just out of curiosity, did you do any comparison between the lawlessness between Osaka and Edo? Was there, say, a higher criminal rate around this time in Edo? Yeah, so um, no, I didn't. And the reason why is because, well, there are a couple of reasons. One is uh, I haven't done that work yet. <laughs> so I look forward to doing that at a future date. The second, I guess, reason is. Um, it's the, the documents that I'm using, I think, are unique. Um, as I've been reading um, among legal scholars, it's actually that they're a kind of a rare collection. Um, it's not to say they don't exist elsewhere in Japan, but to get these kinds of documents preserved in this way and this early in the process, I think, is something that was really unique. Um, and it's taken a while to work through them. Uh, I still haven't got all the way through them, but it's kind of sitting on my desk and I can imagine it'll be probably a year or two before I can actually get all the way through them. But I think ultimately, comparatively, that's really interesting. Um, but I guess the, the bigger question to me is the ways in which localities themselves aren't just subsumed within processes of uh, nation building or modernization, to use that difficult word. But actually, there are conditions on the ground and circumstances on the ground that dictate their trajectories. They maintain significant deviance in some cases from what's going on in the centre. Um, and there's ways in which their own practices get folded back in uh, to to the eventual reforms we see at a national level. So this is certainly true for Osaka, and I think um, if I broaden my scope to other regions, I think we'd also find some very interesting case studies. Mm. I believe so too. Now my next question is for Donna. Um, your chapter examines how Japan was represented in uh, Chinese Coast Press, am I correct? Yes. Chi China Coast Press. Uh, which is uh, English language media. So how did they talk about Japan's changes and how did they interpret them? Uh, it's a great it's a great question. Thank you for asking me. Um, um, my, my approach for the chapter was to explore um, mainly the British communities that were living along the China coast. So this really is a treaty port world in some ways. And I used, um, my main source was the North China Herald and Market Report, which became uh, very rapidly the most eminent newspaper, self-professed most eminent, but it was regarded as, as the most influential English language uh, newspaper uh, on, the, on the China coast. It, it is really very much a voice for um, Britons and, and other foreigners, but Britons predominantly, who had business interests or other interests in the treaty ports. So this is why um, using this newspaper, I found it was, I felt it would be um, valuable to think about, so what, how do these communities make sense of what they see unfolding in Japan? 
And that's what really fascinated me to try and sort of explore because these are communities that consider themselves as having a, an expert view because they are on the ground um, quite often, you know, in the, in the 1800s, you know, in the 1860s, 1870s, they, they're often reporting what they see. By the 1920s and 1930s, these communities are giving advice to the British Foreign Office and saying, we tell you what we think we need to do. So there's very much this sense of um, feeling that they have experience on the ground and that they have uh, an expert view. Um, there are a few different ways that they tried to make sense of what they saw unfolding in Japan. So one was um, the, the reporting on the Meiji Emperor in particular was uh, very ambivalent. So press accounts would run from describing the Meiji Emperor as just a lad, which is you know, it's quite patronizing. He's just a lad uh, incapable of really wielding any power. Um, to then, even within the space of a couple of weeks, saying perhaps here we have the chance to settle what is a long agitated country. So, so there is this ambivalence with being uncertain of what's going on, trying to explain um, the Meiji Restoration. And, and quite often what, what the, the press would do is try and refer to uh, events in British history. So for their readership to try and say, well, then perhaps this is like, you know, so, so they would try and sort of compare it um, uh, across British history to give some sort of reference points. So it was really attempts to make sense of what they saw as instability. Uh, the more... I'd say in, in some cases you do see mention of, and this I would say is very much the voice of the China coast, uh, mention of um, concern saying, well, if the emperor is really not up to the task, maybe Britain needs to take Japan in hand. Well, this is very much a sort of a China coast perspective that the British can solve everything. Um, and we know that, of course, the treaty ports are not a part of any formal uh, empire, but quite often those Britons living in these treaty ports felt that they were. So I think those attitudes really come through. Um, another theme that I, I sort of picked up on was this idea of the hopefulness of business opportunities. So there's a lot of anticipation. So the press tends to report on steamship purchases, rail lines that are being established, um, hotels that would be suitable for merchants or travelers, anything that pointed to trade-friendly environments. And, and the way I see this is because if, if you were part of the foreign community living in a port such as Shanghai, you were seen as having sort of the first mover advantage, to use a very modern term. The whole idea was if you're, you represented agency house in Shanghai, you would be looking at you know, what opportunities do we have to establish uh, further business interests. So, so this is something that, that runs through the press at the time. There's always this speculation on what business ventures may open up what opportunities there would be for expansion. So uh, using a base on the China coast as a way of then expanding your business interest into Japan. Um, and then, then finally, so I, so I had three ways that I was sort of exploring this or three themes in terms of the press. There's a, a tour, a member of the British royal family visits Japan. So this is uh, His Royal Highness Prince Alfred, the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, he visits Japan and has an audience with the Meiji Emperor. And this is something that the China Coast Press uh, followed with a lot of attention, partly because this spoke to diplomacy. It spoke to British status in Japanese eyes. And this was seen as extremely important that if the prince was regarded or treated in a way that was deferential, this spoke well of uh, British status in East Asia uh, more generally. So, so again, this, this idea of how um, 
Meiji Japan was being perceived, but also that importance of um, how British interests would would they be respected? And so, using uh, the prince's visit as a way of sort of exploring that, would we be given uh, due respect? And this is something I think you know uh, an important thing to bear in mind is. Um, throughout all these press reports, the China Coast Press tends to want to com- want to compare and contrast. So they'll tend to say, Japan, it seems like a lot is happening. Um, perhaps this is a chance to settle an agitated country. There's investment in infrastructure. And then uh, within the same article, there'll be a mention of if only China would follow. So there's, there's this contrast over and over again of a, a forward-looking Japan that is, has that potential to be a modern Japanese state, and this is the way the press would tend to report it, versus a backward-looking Chinese that refused to uh, pay attention or weren't, you know, weren't as um, willing to uh, welcome these sort of changes or transformations. So, so in my case, um, this chapter and this research is really a bit exploratory, just looking at ways in which uh, China Coast Press newspapers could be used um, to go beyond just reporting on everyday life in uh, the Chinese treaty ports and thinking about sort of what what applications you can use for, for these sources to thinking more broadly about foreigners and their status uh, in the treaty ports of East Asia. That is so interesting. So who are the readers of these newspapers? Were they foreigners in, in China's uh, port cities? Yes. Yeah. So predominantly, it is uh, foreigners within the treaty ports that would be reading this. Um, I think there is a the sense that some of this would then, uh, some of these articles would then be reported back to, whether it's London or to Liverpool, because of course there are always business connections that are, are traced back. But the idea that this was really the voice of the China coast foreign foreign community, and that they could then use this to leverage or to influence whether it's the foreign office or whether it is business or lobby groups back in London as well. That is so very interesting. And um, uh, next, um, I want to ask Akiko, um, since you write about enlightenment, um, for historians, at least uh, on Japanese study. Uh, on Japanese history, um, enlightenment and civilization were two important slogans during the years after, right after the restoration. And your chapter focuses on the ways that enlightenment was written about and how that challenges the developmental vision that we often read about. Can you talk more about this point? Sure. Um, so um, intellectual historians of uh, modern Japan, uh, including myself, have often drawn a parallel between the European, European Enlightenment and an intellectual trend in, in the early Meiji period. And this parallel that we, we produced, also it's our own production, has often shaped our view uh, or how we view uh, the intellectual trend in this period. So I have been wondering, um, is there any way out? So the Meiji Enlightenment is one of the expression of such, <clears throat> excuse me, such parallelism, I think. So in my chapter, I tried to show both shifting focuses in, in the discussion of the Meiji Enlightenment and also persisting parallelism in the historiography of the Meiji 
indictment and suggested that both shifting focus and persisting parallelism were pointing to certain somewhat theological developmental vision. So, uh, and it is true that Fukuzawa Yukichi or other intellectuals in this period shared such developmental developmental vision vis-a-vis Western powers. But I wanted to find a way to understand their work without assuming the parallel with with the West so so much. And and I I thought one of the ways to do so is not finding anti-West or anti-developmental discourse, but looking at different developmental visions that existed prior to the Meiji Restoration. And I thought uh, Honda Toshiaki's discourse on the colonization of Ezo in the early 19th century is an interesting case. And I, I didn't, I, I couldn't uh, develop this part so much. And I, this part is still ongoing and I'm hoping to write about this future. But in our volume, uh, much experienced intellectual historian uh, Olivier Ansar uh, also has an interesting chapter on Kaiho Seiryo. And then uh, he suggested a very interesting concept of indigenous modernity. Uh, so so I, I think he, he's, I, I, I have been inspired uh, by his work a lot. Your chapter talks about haikai poetry in the Meiji period and the influences on haikai poetry brought by modernization. Um, you mentioned a bit about this in the beginning, but um, in your article, what changes did you mention and how about things that didn't change? And I'm curious about how did haikai from this time period influence what we now understand as haiku? Okay, well, that's a fantastic uh, question. Thank you very much for it. Uh, Things really don't change very quickly. And I don't think if you look at the 19th century as a whole, things change very slowly up until 1873. So there's a lot of, I I don't want to use this, my history friends are going to jump on me for using this word, but there's a kind of evolution of haikai poetry. If we think of change as evolution, perhaps. Change is probably the better word. By the 1860s, we're getting experimentation with new technologies of print. Uh, wooden movable type, I mentioned, uh, is experimented with in the uh, 1860s before 1868. And people are working with new concepts in the 1860s as well. Uh, Haikai collections start to be called shimbun or newspaper. Uh, And that word, if I'm not incorrect, begins to be used in 1862 by uh, the Tokugawa government to print uh, a Japanese copy of a Dutch uh, language uh, broadsheet, maybe. I haven't done all the research on this, but the word is quite new. So people are using this new vocabulary of the uh, late Tokugawa period. Um, and so we get adaptations of, of old, of new words to the, uh, field of haikai poetry, but I think things really changed around 1873. There's the, uh, as I've mentioned, the abrupt switch to the solar calendar, uh, and 
Around this same time, the government sets up an educator system, a kind of propaganda uh, system to uh, educate the populace in the ideology of the Tokugawa, uh, not, excuse me, the Meiji government. Um, and they ask haikai poets to become part of this. They, uh, haikai poets are included. And to my knowledge, this is the first time that haikai is really closely associated with the government in a kind of ideological function. Poets have, had worked for the Tokugawa shogunate at various times in various uh capacities, but this is a kind of formal use of haikai poetry for uh, to just help spread the ideology of uh, the Meiji Restoration. And we can then see haikai poetry in the second half of the 19th century becoming very closely tied, for some poets at least, to uh, the Meiji government itself. The poet that I concentrated on for this very short article for this book, Mimori Mikio, his, he, he becomes one of these educators. So he's very involved in the government propaganda. And at the time of the Russo-Japanese War, in the first few months of it, before the horrors of that war become uh, clear to the people in Japan, his haikai group, which is probably the largest group of haikai poets in Japan in 1905, puts out a collection of uh, patriotic haiku uh, supporting the government's uh, war. Um, And so we see haiku poetry over the course of the second half of the 19th century begin to form very tight uh, bonds with the government, ideological bonds. And of course, many poets will go on to oppose governments uh, in the future of Japan. But this strikes me as something radically new but it's also something that develops over several decades. Uh, In terms of what happens with haiku, that's something that I'm really trying to work out for myself here still. Um, I've very simplistically in the past located the development of haiku with Masoka Shiki and placed it in the 1890s. But the word is being bandied about by other poets in the late 1880s. I found several references in 1888 and 1889 uh, to poets that uh, say, you know, we're starting to use this word haiku. We don't actually know exactly what it means, but clearly shiki is part of something much bigger than I've realized. I think most of these poets aren't uh, aren't available in modern printed form. So they're, they're people that, you know, you have to go back and read the woodblocks that they're, they're churning out and um, look at what they're actually saying. Um, But I think Shiki does represent a kind of radical break. He clearly didn't like this poet Mimori Mikio. There's no love lost between them. They have to sit down at dinner uh, to try to work out their differences sometimes because Shiki's written some really nasty things about Mimori Mikio in the newspaper Nippon. Um, And I think that and to some extent, Shiki represents a radical break, too, because he didn't understand older haikai practice. He wasn't trained in linked verse. If you look at Mimori Mikio and the other so-called old school poets, they're still putting a great deal of emphasis on linked verse, even in the 1890s. Mimori Mikio's son publishes a book on linked verse in the 1920s or maybe the 1930s. I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head. But there's a real break uh, in Haikai practice with Masukashiki. And I think that probably uh, 
to some extent, we can see haiku as a reaction against haikai, uh, uh, a loss of, uh, I, I like linked verse, uh, but I think Shiki didn't, didn't understand it. And there's a real loss that takes place there. I do like Shiki as a poet. I hope I'm not treating him as a straw dog. Now, if we look at um, the influences of this period from the angle of uh, the people who were creating them or who were reading them, did anything change from this government intervention? That's that's a good question, and that for me is still further work. I, I actually had not looked at Haikai after the 1830s until uh, Tim and Akiko suggested this project. So there's a lot of things that still need to be done. Uh, and there were some very good poets writing and training other people in haikai in this period. Um, and one of the things that I would like to do, but I'll need to get to Japan to do this at some point, is look at Mimori Mikio's uh, school. They published a, a, a haikai magazine on a regular basis for 30 years. And I think in that we can probably discover a lot of the sort of process of um aligning this group of up to 10,000 poets with government ideology and propaganda. So I think there's a lot of research to be done here. The, the truth of the matter is that there's very little academic research on this period in Japan. Echigo Keiko has been doing some, some other scholars are beginning to take it up. But up until the past decade or so, there's been very little uh, proper academic research on this topic. So it's really, it's a it's a wide open field that people have ignored. Well, that's great. I mean, definitely. And uh, I, these all these chapters are just so interesting that, um, well, in this interview, I can't possibly ask about all the aspects, even though I really want to. But I want to turn to the uh, bigger implications of your volume. So in a broader sense, how do you think this book could um, inspire regional studies or history studies, even though we are only talking about the Meiji Restoration as the central theme, um, your methodology, your approaches, um, can, I think, um, work for many other studies of other regions as well, or even different periods. So how do you think, um, how do you think your book can inspire other historians and scholars? Thanks, Ji. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer the question. It's a big one. Um, but I, uh, I think there are two kind of ways in which I'm hoping that the book can serve as an inspiration uh, to other scholars uh, moving forward, um, particularly in relation to sort of how they think about regions or areas uh, or how they think about um, history and particularly the history of our region, which is um, something living in Singapore, I think, um, for us is is always present um, thinking about Asia and thinking about uh, where we're at in this historical moment. You know, is this an Asian century or is it not an Asian century? Um, and, you know, the, the prehistories of that and how it's come about. Um, so the first thing is I think um, I would like to 
kind of inspire colleagues and future generations of scholars uh, to um, kind of explore creative ways uh, that they can connect with other scholars around the world uh, to to come to better a better understanding of the kinds of historiographies and the kinds of commitments and the kinds of um, deep research interests that these colleagues have uh, in relation to particular topics and to kind of work together, if you like, uh, to, to really try to develop a kind of a comprehensive or a, or a holistic understanding of something. Of course, it's not possible to be completely comprehensive, but uh, I think there's real meaning in doing that. Um, what Area studies means in my home country of Australia seems to me to be different to what it means in the United States or in Canada. Um, and, you know, what area studies means in Asia is also a really interesting uh, thing to think about. Um, but yeah, to inspire colleagues and future generations of students to be creative in the ways that they, they think and look at, uh, about uh, or think about the major restoration. I think there's lots in the volume. I think, uh, so as I said, you know, at a temporal level, uh, we have long durée approaches. We have long 19th century approaches. We have um, chapters that try to think about moments in history um, and try to anticipate, to, to look look at events and try to look in earlier periods to, to see what anticipates uh, events or to think about the legacies, if you like, of, of events like the Meiji Restoration. Uh, we have colleagues interested in, in being creative about time uh, as well and, and um, the spatialization and the spatial units and the scales uh, that scholars use in their works I think is, is really interesting. And it's not like that these things are in isolation either. I see some chapters actually making significant contributions on multiple fronts uh, in relation to these things and topics as well. Um, so as we explore method, as we try to um, adjust our lens and to, to rethink our interpretations, what we notice, I think, is that the nation gets a bit decentered. Um, so national history and nation building um, is not ignored. Uh, no one ignores it per se, but it, it does tend to kind of creep a little bit into the background as scholars explore other things. Scholars become not so preoccupied with important questions about how societies become modern and, and to use that difficult word again, modernize, um, how they develop, right, economically. So these things are always there in, uh, in the kind of background, but I think in many ways the chapters collectively help to decenter that. And I think this is useful. Uh, I think it's really useful to help us see parts of the major restoration that have been obscured up to this point in time. So that's the first point, so inspiring colleagues and, and future generations of students. The second uh, one is I think this book is also an educational tool. Um, uh, we've always thought about it in that way. From day one when we were planning the conference, we factored in uh, a pedagogical or an educational kind of dimension to what we were doing. And we were hoping that 
the shortness of the contributions, relatively speaking, was something that would speak to new generations of students who are pressed for time and smashed with uh, large amounts of, you know, sort of words on a page. So we wanted these contributions to really speak to where students are at at the moment. Um, we wanted them to see, again, that the Meiji Restoration is not something that can be singularly understood as a, as a nation-building exercise or as a kind of a series of processes that are fundamentally and almost solely uh, undergirded by economic modernization. that there's a lot more to it than that. And from my perspective as a historian, I think the people, uh, the things that people treasure, um, the ideas and the mindsets and the values and the tastes and the customs, all of these things are threaded through the, the book in ways that I think speak to us as we still, many of us are kind of at home, <laughs> uh, single isolated cells, right? Um, and so I think there's ways in which uh, the book can can speak to where people are at. Mm. Oh, um, and Wadonna, you're not technically a historian of Japanese studies, but your chapter by looking uh, from an sort of uh, external standpoint, you read into how the outside world responded to what was going on in Japan. And how do you think um, your approach and uh, what you did in this chapter can help those in not only just Japanese studies, but maybe in other area studies to consider the ways we treat um, history and how we understand the process of, um, air quotes, modernization? Oh, it's it's a, a really great question. And thank you. Yes, you are absolutely right. I'm not a Japan scholar. So I felt immensely uh, privileged uh, to be invited to be part of the conference in the first place and to, to be involved in this project. Um, I felt that, that being able to draw on uh, China Coast Press and China Coast newspapers, it's, it's an approach that, that does open up new possibilities um, because what we, what we then uh, are exploring is how communities who themselves are somewhat liminal, communities, communities in these enclaves, were trying to make sense of what they saw uh, happening around them in East Asia. So and 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 the way they begin to to frame this as you know ideas of seeing the modern or seeing transformation. So I think that in itself is actually something which is it's it's valuable. It, it perhaps adds more nuance to how how were these changes sort of observed by those who considered themselves as reasonably close to the ground. I think in terms of connections for other scholars, what I found really fascinating is some of some of my conversations about about this research have led me to speak with scholars who are exploring royal tours of um, empire or tours of the world. So scholars that are very firmly in imperial history. Uh, and, you know, we, we both sort of, um, I've ended up chatting with some of these scholars and saying, so Prince Alfred, what would he have made of uh, the Meiji emperor? So, so I realized it actually opened up new possibilities and new connections uh, with other historians as well. That's amazing. Well, thank you all so much for this uh, very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for your time.
Thank you very much, G. And and I would just like to um, say I'm really grateful to all of the contributors to the volume as as well as Akiko. Uh, we feel richly blessed that we were surrounded by so many interesting people who are willing to work with us and stick with us through thick and thin. And uh, we're really glad that our research could be published alongside theirs. Thank you. And for our listeners to know more about the other chapters in this volume, which is a lot, uh, make sure to check out Revisiting Japan's Restoration, New Approaches to the Study of the Meiji Transformation. This is Jenny from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode. Mm-hmm.